invite you to take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 3. If you're visiting with us, we've just begun a new series uh, through the life and the ministry of the prophet Elisha. And we come now to 2 Kings, chapter 3. This is the Word of God. Now, in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram the son of Ahab became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now, Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are. My people as your people. My horses as your horses. Then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, Yahweh has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of Yahweh here through whom we may inquire of Yahweh? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of Yahweh is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is Yahweh who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As Yahweh of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of Yahweh came upon him. And he said, thus says Yahweh, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says Yahweh, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink you, your livestock and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of Yahweh. He will also give the Moabites into your hand and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, All who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities. And on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. 
They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir Haraseth, and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. And he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father, we ask that you would reveal to us afresh this morning through your word, Lord, how great is your goodness, how good is your greatness to us. We thank you, Lord, for your mercies that are new every morning. You know where each one of us stands with you in our relationship with you. You know where each one of us is this morning in relationship to our circumstances, to the things that have kept us up even this past night. Lord, we come to you and we seek your face. We ask that you would speak to us through this passage, that your Holy Spirit would illumine the eyes of our hearts, that we might know how high, how wide, how long, how deep is your love to us in Jesus Christ, that we might rest upon your goodness, tasting and seeing that you are good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's possible that one of the earliest prayers that you learned as a child was the mealtime prayer. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Now that prayer, though it's short, uh, has much substance in it, right? It is a, a declaration that God exists, that there's only one true God and that this one true God is good This one true God is great, uh, that we are dependent upon him for even the food that we eat and that God calls us and desires us to to be grateful for what he has given to us and to express that gratitude to him in prayer. Well, our text this morning certainly is not as familiar to you as that childhood prayer, but like that prayer, there's more in this story than meets the eye. And like that prayer, Here in this text, through the prophet Elisha, God declares both his goodness and his greatness. But this passage goes on to say something more than that prayer. In that here in this text, God makes abundantly clear that his goodness and his greatness are shown to those who are absolutely undeserving of it. This morning, I want us to think first about this truth that that our God is good and great. But secondly, that we and all mankind are undeserving. Let's think first, God is good and God is great. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we've just been started working our way through Elisha's life and ministry as Israel's chief prophet. It's important that we sort of take our bearings chronologically, that we remember where we are in in history. Uh, These events take place in the second half of the ninth century BC. You remember, you know, BC counts, you know, backwards, right, as it were. Uh, And so uh, here we are at about 850 BC. Uh, Elisha has taken the mantle from Elijah. Uh, Elisha will die in, in the 790s BC. Right? So he lives and ministers for a long while. Uh, our text this morning, you notice, begins with a historical note of introducing the king of Israel at this time. 
At the end of 1 Kings, we read that when Ahab died, his son Ahaziah took the throne, but he only ruled for about two years. And we see at the end of 2 Kings chapter 1 that when he died, he was childless, which means he was heirless. He had no one of his own offspring to sit on the throne. And so another son of Ahab, Jehoram, sits on the throne. Sometimes in the Bible, you'll see Jehoram called Joram. It's sort of like Daniel and Danny, right? A short name. And so Jehoram. Jehoram, Joram, uh, at some point during Jehoram's reign, uh, this prophetic succession from Elijah to Elisha occurred. Now, our text tells us as well that when Ahab died, Misha, the king of Moab, rebelled against Israel. He took advantage of the political instability of this transition in power. And he said, forget it, enough is enough. I'm, I'm sick and tired of, of giving you uh, these, these lambs and all this wool that you want from me, this tax that you've laid upon me. And so we're done. I'm not going to give it to you anymore. Ahaziah had not done anything to quell this rebellion. And, and so Jehoram wants to deal with it when he uh, takes power. He musters the men of Israel to go and to fight against Moab. But notice that he also sends a messenger to King Jehoshaphat down in Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, asking him if he will go with him into the battle. Now, 2 Chronicles chapter 20 tells us that, that before this, Moab had already attacked Judah. All right? And so uh, certainly Jehoshaphat does have incentive to, to go with Israel and to fight against Moab to prevent uh, and reduce their power uh, from invading Judah again. Uh, so Jehoshaphat answers Jehoram uh, with the same words that he had answered Ahab back in, in 1 Kings when Ahab had asked him to fight against Syria. And you see the words there. I will go. I am as you are. Right? My people as your people. My horses as your horses. Right? He's saying, look, what's mine is yours. We're, we're at your service. And then he asked Jehoram which way he wants to attack. And Jehoram says, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. Now, if you were to flip to the back of your Bibles, perhaps, and look at the, the Bible maps there, you would notice that, that Moab is, is southeast of the Dead Sea, right? There's the Jordan River, there's the Dead Sea, you know, the Mediterranean Sea is, is, is to Israel's west, and then east of uh, the Jordan River in the Dead Sea uh, is Moab, southeast. Uh, there's the, a river called the, the Arnon River that, that runs uh, this way, right, to the east, I'm opposite of my hand uh, from you. Uh, but above, right above that river was uh, Israel, was the tribe of Reuben, right? So there's Reuben right here, there's a river, then there's Moab, and, and just below Moab was Edom, the nation of Edom. Uh, there was uh, just desert in between Edom and Judah, right? So, so here is Israel, there's Judah, there's Edom, there's Moab. Uh, and, and so though this southern route would have taken longer, uh, though uh, it, it would have been more difficult terrain to, to go through, uh, yet it made sense to avoid sort of this head-on assault across a river into Moab uh, with Syria at their back, who might have uh, taken opportunity to attack them. Uh, attacking from the south would have given them an, an element of surprise. And, and so uh, they, they take that route. It also helped that uh, after Moab had invaded uh, Judah and been defeated, Edom was, was weakened. And so they could uh, force Edom to fight on the side of, of Judah and Israel. Uh, but as uh, you know from uh, John Steinbeck's novel of Mice and Men, the, uh, the, the great poem by Robert Burns, To a Mouse, in which he writes, The best laid plans of mice and men go off to rye and leave us naught but, but grief and pain for promised joy. Uh, here we have 
the best laid plans of mice and men going awry, don't we? See, the problem was that desert wilderness between Judah and Edom, uh, coupled with the lack of preparation on the part of Jehoram and Jehoshaphat. Uh, Sun Tzu, who wrote The Art of War, writes this, We may take it then that an army without its baggage train is lost. Without provisions, it is lost. Without bases of supply, it is lost. Well, Israel, Judah, and Edom are lost, right? Verse 9 tells us that after a circuitous march of seven days, they ran out of water for their soldiers and for their animals. You may remember last year when Russia invaded Ukraine that their tanks and their vehicles ran out of gas, right? You don't want to run out of gas in a, in a war. You don't want to run out of water if that is your fuel, right? If you can't move, you can't fight. If you can't fight, you can't win. And so here is Israel and Judah and Edom, right? They had probably assumed that the brooks there in the desert wilderness would have had water, but they didn't. So things look hopeless, particularly to Jehoram. You see what he says in verse 10. Alas, Yahweh, the Lord, has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat takes a, a different approach, right? As he had done with, with Ahab, he asked if there is a prophet of Yahweh anyway, anywhere around, that we can inquire of the Lord by him. Well, lo and behold, right, in God's good providence, the, the prophet Elisha just happens to be among the armies, Jehoshaphat knows him by reputation, and so he says, yes, let's go and, and see him. So they go and they see Elisha. He calls for a musician, which is curious. Nowhere else in the Bible uh, is music required for a prophet to, to prophesy, and yet it's when the music plays that, that God's hand comes upon Elisha. And you read his prophecy there in verses 16 and following. He says, thus says Yahweh, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools, for thus says Yahweh, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. Do you hear what Elisha is saying? God, out of his goodness, out of his grace, is promising to deliver his people in their time of need, to deliver them out of their distress. For our God is a good God to those who cry to him in their time of need. Out of his goodness, he promises to deliver his people. And yet, we all know it, don't we? How easy it is to forget this truth. How easy it is to forget the truth of the goodness of God. E even to be like Jehoram, again in verse 10, who uses very sound theological language about the sovereignty of God. And yet he's full of despair about the goodness of God. One commentator put it well, always beware of folks who cite the sovereignty of God in order to excuse or to accuse, but not to worship or adore. Now, Jehoshaphat, though, shows us a better way, doesn't he? He looks to, he trusts in the word of the Lord for direction, for comfort, for deliverance, because it's in the word of God that the goodness of God is so clearly communicated. This is particularly true as we look at the Psalms, isn't it? Listen to these, these verses from the Psalms. Psalm 34, verse 16. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Or, or Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and you do good. You are good and you do good. Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to all. And his mercies are over all of his works. Do you see how the text is, 
is showing us the goodness of God to deliver his people, to help his people in all of their distress, in all of their horrible circumstances. God comes to rescue them. But, but not only is, is God good and gracious, not only does this story show us how God is good and gracious, it also teaches us that he is great and he is mighty. And it does this in several ways. First, notice the way that God provides water for his people. He does it without rain that they could see with their eyes. Now, verse 20 tells us that the water flows from the direction of Edom, which most likely indicates that, that God had caused it to rain up on the mountains of Edom. And the water flowed down into the valley stream. Now, remember, the, the background of 2 Kings, particularly this, this section of it, is the god Baal who declared to, was declared to be the God of fertility, right? The God who would, who would bring the storms, riding upon the storm clouds. And yet Baal can do nothing to give water to anyone. It is Yahweh, it is the God of Israel, the one true God, who powerfully displays his greatness by controlling the weather right, to rescue his people from their lack of water. But God also manifests his greatness in this story by doing far more than Israel and Judah had even asked for. They wanted water. And God says, I'm going to give you water, but I'm also going to do more. I'm going to deliver Moab into your hands, he says. Look at what Elisha says in verse 18. He says, look, giving you water is a light thing. It's an easy thing. God will also give the Moabites into your hand and you shall attack every fortified city, every choice city. You shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Right? You will conquer them. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32 verse 17 says this, nothing is too difficult for the God of heaven and earth. The God who made the heavens and the earth by his outstretched power by his great and mighty hand, nothing is too difficult for God. He is good and he is great. But, but there's one more way that we see the greatness of God in this text. And it's in the manner in which God delivers Moab into their hands. If you ever bold, right, you know that, that the worst thing you can do is have the last two pins standing, right? The seven and the 10. Did y'all know that Dean's a bowler? He was like, an amazing bowler, right? Dean can knock down the seven and the 10, right? Maybe not every time, right, Dean? <laughs> but if you can knock down the seven and the 10 with one ball, like that's pretty amazing, right? Or if you're playing chess and you're able to like move a piece and, and not only do you take a piece, but then you put the king and the queen in check at the same time, like that's really, really good. So here's what's going on here in this story. God is using this water to do two things. God's a multitasker, right? He, he quenches the thirst of his people and he uses the very same water that quenches the thirst of his people to draw the Moabites into a trap. They see the water as red as blood on the ground, the text tells us. And they draw this conclusion wrongly that the three kings had fought amongst themselves and had killed themselves. It killed themselves off, right? They'd, they had all fought together and they were all dead. And so they rush in pell-mell, willy-nilly, throwing caution to the wind, right, to take the plunder, to take the spoil. And it's only as they come near to the camp of Israel that they realize their mistake. The Israelites arise, they strike them, they push them back, they fulfill the Lord's, Lord, the, the Lord's word to decimate their cities and their fields. 
they take Moab. We'll come to the ending here in a moment. But do you see the, the point of this story? The author of Kings is wanting to show to you the goodness and the greatness of God. He's wanting to show you how great God is in his goodness and how good God is in his greatness. Again, listen to the psalm, Psalm 69, verse 16. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. Or Psalm 31, verse 19. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. Do you believe in the greatness of the goodness of God? Do you believe in the goodness of the greatness of God? Do you believe as the child prays that God is great and God is good? And do you entrust yourself to him for care, for provision, for rescue, for deliverance in all of your circumstances, in all of your needs? Do you lean upon him? Do you look to him? Whatever it is you're going through this morning, it may be even something as basic as we have no water, right? We have no food, right? I've lost my job. My child is wayward in the faith. Right? Things are hard with family. Things are hard at work. Whatever it is, as you cry out to the Lord, not only is the Lord good and desires to bring good into your life, but he is great. He is able to do it. There's nothing that our God cannot do. But here's the, the related question. As you trust the goodness and the greatness of God, do you also realize that you deserve none of that greatness and none of that goodness? That brings us to our second point. God is good. God is great. But man is undeserving. You see, what makes this passage so astounding is that God's goodness and greatness come to two people, Jehoram and Jehoshaphat, who in no way deserve it. Rather, God's goodness, God's greatness comes as pure, unmerited, unearned, unconditional, contraconditional grace. In the very first verse, alarm bells should be ringing in our ears, right? Jehoram, the son of Ahab. Now, it's true. As the text tells us, he didn't do evil like his father and his mother, Jezebel. Verse 2 tells us that he put away the pillar of Baal that Ahab had made. But though Baal worship wasn't as central, perhaps, as it once had been, yet the prophets of Baal are still active. Right? That's why Elisha responds to Jehoram in verse 13 the way that he does. Right? He says, what do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father. Go to the prophets of your mother. Like, this is who you're used to going to. Why are you coming to a prophet of Yahweh? Why are you coming to the prophet of the one true God? You worship these false gods. And, and notice also that verse 3 makes clear that Jehoram clung to, not just tolerated or put up with, but clung to the sin of Jeroboam, which he had made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Again, this is a reference to the, the false worship, the idolatrous worship that Israel was offering to God at Bethel in the south, at Dan in the north, through these golden calves, this false priesthood that they had invented with their own hearts. 
You see, Jehoram refused to believe that the second commandment mattered to God, that God was a jealous God who only wanted to be worshipped in the way that he commanded that we should worship him, not according to our own imaginations, not in any which way that we might think to worship him. So yes, it's true, Jehoram was not a flaming Baal worshiper, but he didn't worship Yahweh acceptably either. As our larger catechism puts it, some sins are more heinous than others, yes, but every sin, even the least, deserves God's wrath and curse. We've already noticed Jehoram's whiny lack of faith there in verse 10. If you add in the fact that there's no reference here to inquiring of the Lord until the water runs out, how often is that our case? There's no question here in this story of how little Jehoram deserves the goodness and the greatness of God. But you have to see as well that Jehoshaphat is just as undeserving. Yes, it's true that the only reason why Elisha would talk to them or see them was because he had regard for the Davidic king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, verse 14 tells us. And it's true that in so many ways, Jehoshaphat was a man of exemplary faith particularly in setting his heart to seek the Lord, as the Chronicles, the book of Chronicles often puts it. We even see a glimpse of that here, don't we? Though it is a little bit late in the game. Uh, at least in 1 Kings 22, when Ahab asked him to go to war, he, he asked if we could inquire of Yahweh at the beginning. Right here, it's in the middle. It's at the very end when everything looks hopeless. Right? But what is Jehoshaphat thinking of being unequally yoked with Jehoram even in the first place? Why is he even willing to go into battle with him? Well, the answer, of course, as we learn particularly in the book of Chronicles, but even in Kings, we see it, is that Jehoshaphat had already unequally yoked himself with Ahab in marriage. He had already given his son, who also named Jehoram, in marriage to Ahab's daughter, Athaliah, who was this Jehoram's sister. So, so here's the thing. Jehoshaphat, having already received a prophetic rebuke, as we read in 2 Chronicles, for helping the wicked and allying himself with those who hate the Lord. Yet here he is, just a few years later, after that rebuke by the prophet, doing the exact same thing. Loving his family more than he loved his Lord. Which that hits a little close to us here in Mississippi, doesn't it, right? Hits a little close to us here in the South. We value the family, rightly so, but do we realize, do we recognize that it is possible for family to lead you away from God, for family to be an idol vying for allegiance with the one true God, to love and obey our family more than we love and obey our Lord. And it can happen in both directions, whether in regard to our parents, or as in the case of Jehoshaphat, in regard to our children. Here we are, seeing Jehoshaphat committing sin, very familiar to us. And it's showing us that both Jehoram and Jehoshaphat are utterly unworthy of the goodness and the greatness of God. You see, if, if Jehoram were right, that Yahweh had called these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab, then they would have been worthy of that fate. They would have deserved that fate. God would be no less just, no less good, no less great if he had not provided water to them 
and had not given them victory over Moab. But the fact that he does do these things, the fact that that God does give them water, does give them victory over Moab, how astounding, how amazing, how immense is the great goodness of our God. We deserve none of the good things that God gives us. Lord, if you counted all of our sins, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you are feared. No matter what the Lord chooses to give us, he always gives us far better than we deserve. Ralph Davis, in his commentary, tells the story of, of Dr. John Gerstner. Uh, Carl, did you have John Gerstner as a professor? Shaking his head, yes. John Gerstner was R.C. Sproul's mentor and, and teacher. Uh, and, and Ralph Davis tells this story about how John Gerstner was preaching a sermon one day in a, in a church, a visiting preacher, and he was preaching about man's utter sinfulness and his total depravity and his, his inability, complete inability to commend himself to the Lord by our own efforts. And a lady came up to Dr. Gerstner at the end of the sermon and said, you made me feel about this big with that sermon. And Dr. Gerstner said, that's too big. That's too big, right? Even that little space is too big. We deserve nothing, nothing of the goodness and the greatness of God. And yet he lavishes it upon us. He pours it out upon us. And don't we see that goodness and that greatness most clearly in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? And doesn't this story so wonderfully and beautifully point us to Jesus? Just as God provides water for his people through Elisha's prophetic word, and, and, and because of the Davidic son, the Davidic king, and as verse 20 tells us, in connection with the timing of the, the priest offering the morning sacrifice, so the thirst-quenching water of life, ultimate deliverance from all of our foes, all of God's goodness, all of God's greatness, is given to us through the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the eternal word of God who took to himself human flesh. He is the true son of David, reigning and ruling righteously and representatively over us, the people of God. He is the sacrificial lamb of God. He is the great high priest. Through his blood, God has done multiple things all at once. He has triumphed over rulers and authorities rendering powerless Satan who held the power of death. He has forgiven all of our sins. He has reconciled us to himself. He has freed us from the power of sin, the sting of death. And he has done this not just for Jews, but for Gentiles as well. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 7, the exact same word that's used here in verse 13, light, is used when Isaiah says, God speaking to his servant, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. How great is the goodness of our God. Now this story ends rather strangely. We can't, don't have time to get into all the details, but uh, I'll just say that, that commentators are divided on how we are to understand what that great wrath is at the very end, right? We, we see that Misha is, is, you know, retreats into the city. He tries to break through. He can't. So he offers his son as a sacrifice to the Moabite god, Chemosh. 
again, it's hard to know exactly what's going on. Clearly, Israel withdraws. They don't get utter and full victory. But here's what we can know for sure. That what Misha did, offering his son as a sacrifice on the wall, is pagan religion in a nutshell. You have to seek to appease, to coerce, to manipulate the God that you worship by your own deeds, by your own sacrifices, by your own suffering. But biblical religion, true religion, the gospel of God, is completely different. It says that God sends and sacrifices his son, that God appeases his own wrath out of his great goodness and love and grace toward undeserving sinners like you and like me. It's not about what we do. It's not about what we suffer. It's about what God does, what God has done through Jesus for you. It's about what Jesus has suffered in your place. And that's what we celebrate this morning around the Lord's table together. God sent his son Jesus out of the greatness of his goodness and out of the goodness of his greatness. No matter what you are suffering this morning, my prayer is that you would cry to him for help, that you would cry to him for deliverance, for the life-giving waters, that you would come to the one who is greater than Elisha, the one who is greater than Jehoshaphat, that you would find rest for your souls in the goodness of God, in the greatness of God, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, oh Lord, for what it reveals to us about yourself, what it reveals to us about ourselves, what it reveals to us about Jesus, your son, our savior. Oh Lord, would you give us grace to trust in you, to taste and to see how good, how great you are, and to see it all in the light of our undeserved, Lord, that we are sinners, and yet you have lavished us with your goodness and your greatness. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.